Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing on this Wednesday morning with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks drop as the dollar rises with treasuries. Hutchison Wampoa is to buy Telefonica's O2 unit for $15.3 billion. Morgan Stanley's Ruth Porat is to join Google as its new CFO. And Chinese factory gauge slumps as the slowdown has Lee on standby. Well, China's facing a slowdown, but it's also paving its way to potentially playing a larger role in global affairs. We'll discuss this with our markets guest this morning, Louis Wong from Philip Capital Management. Then Adam Falk, the president of Williams College, talks to us about why the Bao Forum for Asia this year is focusing on the future of education. Stuart Altcroft of City Trust is our regular Wednesday guest host. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita. So, Stuart, another day down in the markets in Chinese manufacturing, in oil prices. Is there any good news at all? Yes, it went down, therefore it's cheaper. Okay, that is the good news. (laughs) It's got a chance to go back up again. All right. Well, uh, U.S. stocks finished lower this morning after positive uh, economic data lifted speculation that the Federal Reserve could move more quickly to raise interest rates. The Dow fell half a percent to 18,011. The broad-based S&P 500 fell three-fifths of a percent to 2,091, while the tech-rich Nasdaq Composite Index dropped three-tenths of a percent to 4,994. Uncertainty about the Fed and a potentially weak first-quarter GDP and earnings as well could send U.S. markets even lower in the coming months. Here's Phil Orlando, chief equity strategist at Federated Investors. I think there are three significant concerns right ahead of the market. First, you just spent a good amount of time talking about confusion over the Fed. We think earnings for the first quarter, which are going to kick off on April 8th, are going to be weak. Uh, And we think first quarter GDP, which will get flashed on April 29th, is going to disappoint. So for those three reasons, with stocks sitting here at record highs, uh, a 5 to 10 percent correction, I think, would be uh, completely appropriate. Michael Holland is uh, the chairman of Holland & Company, and he agreed that stocks could broadly fall before rallying again. I think we are firmly in a bull market. I think that the uh, the Federal Reserve is one of the reasons we're, we're still firmly in a bull market. Just as the People's Bank of China and the European Central Bank are supporting those markets, the, the uh, Federal Reserve has, has supported our, our markets here so easily over the last six years. The easy part is over, as you were implying in your question. And I think that right now it's going to be a little more uh, volatile. And I think that we're going to uh, lose a little bit of money before we make a little money. That's all. The Asian Development Bank is forecasting a steady economic growth of 6.3% in Asia for the next two years. And this is despite a slowdown, of course, in China. It uh, says that further structural reforms and slowing investment on the mainland could mean a GDP growth of 7.2% this year, slowing to 7% the year after. But the ADB expects this to be made up for by stronger growth in India of about 7.8% this year, and also Indonesia, as well as lower oil prices. Shang Wei is the Development Bank's chief economist. This growth pattern is uh, supported by what I call three R's, uh, reforms at home, reduction in commodity prices, and recovery in high-income countries. Inflation is, pressure is lower due to a combination of domestic monetary policy reforms, such as the case of India, and lower commodity prices. Uh, Finally, because financial development does not automatically lead to better inclusive outcome or financial stability, one needs to pay attention to both 
financial inclusion measures and to measures that could make a country more resilient to domestic financial shocks and international financial shocks. And the Chinese manufacturing gauge fell to an 11-month low in March, suggesting that more stimulus may be needed to bolster factories in the world's second-largest economy. RTHK's Wendy Wang reports. The preliminary reading of the Purchasing Managers Index commissioned by HSBC fell to 49.2 in March, the lowest level in 11 months and below the 50-point level that separates growth in activity from contraction. February readings was 50.7. Economists have forecast March's reading to be at least 50. The latest poll reading as to signs that the economy has lost momentum despite two interest rate cuts since November, a reduction in the amount of money banks must keep in reserve, and repeated attempts by the central bank to reduce financing costs. Given the latest data, some analysts are predicting the central bank will take measures to boost lending and another interest rate cut. First quarter economic growth is expected to dip below the government's new four-year target of 7%, widely seen as the level needed to keep employment steady. Chinese stocks slipped in Hong Kong following the report. Well, in company news, Google has announced a new company hire. Morgan Stanley's CFO, Ruth Porat, in the same position, that is, CFO of Google. It leaves many wondering about a dividend or a buyback. Martin Piconin of Rosenblatt Securities says that this hire is a positive move. I think both of those points are probably a little further off than people might like to think. I mean, I, I cover media and entertainment stocks, and obviously buybacks are a theme there. I, I think Google still has a lot of growth. I'm, I'm looking at this as a very positive move. Number one, Ruth coming in, uh, bringing in more financial discipline. Patrick had, I think, good financial discipline. She'll add more. But at the same time, not stifle Google's investments. I think one of the attractive things about this is the fact that she has a tech, Silicon Valley, and Wall Street background. So it can be a very good balance. But, you know, I, I think at some point there could be talk of a dividend, but I, I wouldn't put it in the 2016 timeframe to give you some, some frame of reference. And billionaire Lee Kashing's Hutchison Wampoa has agreed to buy Telefonica's O2 unit in the UK for more than $15 billion to create the country's big, biggest wireless provider by customers. Stuart, how significant do you think this is? I mean, it does mean that in the UK, wireless networks will be reduced from four to three. Uh, yes, but there's a lot of competition. Prices are um, uh, are also being restricted, and as you, as you're probably aware, the telecoms regulators across Europe are uh, keeping a very close eye on ensuring that prices are fair, especially when travelling within Europe. So I, I doubt it will uh, have a, a sort of monopoly impact at, at all in that market. And what does it actually mean for Hutchison here, you know, from a, from a corporate company uh, That's level? an interesting question, and I don't think we've heard yet whether there is any plan to, to form a great link-up uh, between what they do in Hong Kong and Asia and what they're doing in, in, in Europe and the UK. Uh, that would make a lot of sense. Uh, you know, we have a lot of people from Hong Kong that travel to Europe and the UK particularly, and if they could get cheaper prices by using the Hutchison uh, route, that, that would, I'm sure, be very popular. All right. Well, you know, lots of uh, different company news this morning. What do you think of, uh, you know, what's happening at Google with uh, 
Ruth Porat coming over from Morgan Stanley. I mean, Wall Street comes to Silicon Valley. Good yes, idea? well, you know, Google is one of these companies that is continuing to grow and grow and adding on new thoughts, ideas. It's got a lot of businesses um, that are not just in the simple tech area. Um, and, it, and it needs to have the expertise of professionals. And I guess this is why they're recruiting as they are. So, Stuart, um, sort of lots of things going on on the economic front uh, this morning. I mean, mm. oil prices have come under pressure once again, yep. uh, thanks to uh, Chinese factory data looking not so pleasant. And um, adding, of course, to concerns about slowing growth from the world's top oil importer, uh, Brent crude has slipped to $55 a barrel this morning. What do we glean from all of this? Well, I think, I mean, I, I noted last night um, that, uh, for example, and I, I, I talk about this probably a bit much, but, you know, the UK has now got uh, zero inflation and is now on the point of deflation. And one of the reasons be- behind this is simply because the price of oil has fed through to the petrol pumps and is now costing a lot less. Uh, inflation is being uh, eradicated in places as a, as a result of the lower oil price. And that's a good thing for consumers. Of course, um, if you start to see deflation, and if it goes for a long period of time, that's not so good. But uh, if prices are flat and are flat for an extended period of time, people welcome that. So, Stuart, where, you know, where is that fine line? How do we reconcile the two? I mean, you know, gross inflation is not a good thing, yet deflation is not a good thing. Um, where do we find the balance? Well, that's why governments forecast to have inflation rates of around 2%. That seems to be the accepted figure. Uh, economists like that figure. But achieving it is really, really tough. Uh, you reported earlier that in China they're looking to have um, growth of around 7% this year, but they also need to have quite high levels of inflation, at least 5% in China, uh, to achieve that. So, so this is the sort of thing that happens. If you have very low inflation, um, that's good. If you have deflation, as you say, that's not so good if it's for a long period of time, simply because people will not be buying goods today that they think in six or 12 months' time will be significantly cheaper. And that means manufacturing will reduce. So this is where we are heading if oil continues to drop to, well, some analysts are saying $35 range. Yes, uh, we've talked before about the oil price and 40 was the, the low point that I, I, I put on it at one time. But uh, who knows, frankly, if there's too much oil out there, if there's a glut, then then then. Clearly, the price goes down because the supply is in oversupply. Uh, We haven't seen that yet, um, but we could just as easily see the taps turned off and prices go back up again. It is very much governed by the the people who run the taps. All right, let's bring in Lewis Wong, uh, who is a a director at Philip Capital Management. He joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Lewis. Morning. Lewis, are economic headwinds pointing towards another rate cut from the PBOC in the very near future? Yes, uh, the uh, HSBC uh, China Manufacturing PMI the data released yesterday uh, showed that the China economy is uh, further slowing down. So there's room for more monetary easing. And, um, you know, there's, there's quite a bit happening with China right now. I mean, in terms of growth, it's definitely slowing down, as we all know. And the ADP, ADB has actually put India's growth rate ahead of China. 
Do you see this turning into a race for growth between uh, these two countries? Uh, well, I think now for China, the uh, the major goal is to stabilize economic growth or stabilize the, the economy uh, instead of uh, uh, seeking uh, the kind of uh, high growth rate that, uh, that was common in the last decade. Uh, so everything is about stabilization. And there are other things happening, you know, on the positive side for China as well. I mean, the yuan may win the IMF's blessing as a reserve currency. Uh, The Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is taking place under China's leadership. Jim O'Neill, he is the former uh, chief economist of Goldman Sachs and also um, the person who coined the term BRIC. And he says that this is the beginning of a bigger role for China in global affairs. Do you agree? Uh, yes, I do agree that. And uh, China has also embarked upon something, some uh, uh, schemes like uh, the like Germany, uh, which is known as uh, uh, the uh, Industrial Revolution 4.0, uh, trying to transform itself from a uh, uh, manufacturing uh, power big country to a uh, manufacturing uh, dominating country, so that it's not only uh, uh, has a competitive advantage in the, um, uh, cheap labor, but also in uh, creation and design. And uh, I think Afro is moving up the uh, the value tra- chain. And uh, in addition to that, uh, the uh, further opening up of the uh, capital markets in China after the uh, Shanghai stock, uh, Hong Kong stock connect, now the Shenzhen uh, stock stock connect is underway and uh, uh, which means the inclusion of Asia into the NSCI world index is also uh, a very uh, high, highly uh, uh, likely in, in, in future and it also uh, will be uh, favorable to the uh, economic growth of China. All right, Lewis, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Lewis Wong. He is a director at Philip Capital Management. A quick look at the numbers now. Uh, the Nikkei is up uh, 0.1% to 19,741. Australia's ASX index is up uh, two-fifths of a percent to uh, 5,947. And Seoul's Kospi is up uh, 0.1% to 2,043. In currencies, one euro currently buys you a one Point zero nine U.S. dollars. One U.S. dollar is trading at uh, 119 yen. One pound sterling buys you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 50 cents. And uh, the sterling also buys you 1.48 U.S. dollars. To deal with multi-drug resistant organisms, apart from using antibiotics properly, we need your help. How can you help? By cleaning your hands frequently. Clean your hands with soap or an alcohol-based hand rub before and after taking care of patients, before eating or taking medicine, and after coughing or sneezing. And rub your hands for at least 20 seconds during cleaning. And after going to the toilet, you must wash your hands with soap. For details, please visit www.chp.gov.hk.
The time is now 8.18 a.m. And the annual Bao Forum for Asia starts from tomorrow uh, in Bao, uh, in the Hainan province in China. Loosely modeled on the Davos conferences, the forum brings together leaders in government, business and uh, acad- academia to work collectively towards economic integration in Asia. This year, President Xi Jinping and 15 other foreign leaders will attend. And our next guest this morning is Adam Falk. He is the president of Williams College, the number one liberal arts college in the United States. Adam will take part in a panel about uh, the future of education. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. And welcome to Money for Nothing. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, great to see you. So tell us, what are you going to be talking about at uh, the Bow Forum? It's going to be very interesting. It's a panel that has representatives, leaders from all sorts of types of higher education institutions uh, in the United States and in China and in Australia, large universities, large public universities, large private universities. And I'm there to represent the sector that's the small liberal arts college. Uh, which I would like people to know more about in Asia and how, how we educate students. And who else is uh, on, on the panel with you? Uh, the Chancellor of the University of California at Los Angeles, Gene Block, uh, the President of Georgetown University, which is a private university in Washington, uh, John DeGoya, the uh, Vice Chancellor of the University of Sydney, and then some Chinese academic leaders as well. So that is a cross-section of very, very different kinds of educational mm-hmm. institutions. Why are they uh, consciously bringing all you different folks together? Well, I think that it's a wonderful opportunity to talk about these different modes of education. Uh, myself, I've been educated at uh, large state universities. I've worked at large privates. And I think there's something very special about the small liberal arts college and the kind of very personal education that it delivers. We are at a small scale at Williams. About 500 students graduate each year. And I think it's very interesting to put that into conversation, particularly in an Asian context, with these, op- with these institutions that operate at a very large scale and see what's different. And what is different? Um, you know, liberal arts offers neither vocational training mm. nor professional mm. training. Um, so what does it offer and why is that special? I would argue that a liberal arts education, which is a broad education in the sciences, to be sure, but also in the humanities and the social sciences, is the most practical education that we can give young people for a changing world. Uh, It's true that uh, when our our graduates may have to compete against students with more technical educations, that initially uh, they may have some additional training to get. But over the long term, over a 10 or 20 or 30 year period during which Uh, The world is going to change in ways we can't possibly imagine. Uh, I would argue that the flexibility of mind that we train is the most practical type of training that we can give young people. So uh, you said uh, – you made a very interesting comment recently uh, when I heard you talk about liberal arts education. You said you know, that the tools that you actually will pick up in – certainly at Williams yeah. are those that you will put together to form uh, – what did you say? You said it, they reach the starting point for real education. That's right. From there. What do you mean by that? So rather than the emphasis being on a collection of facts the the students learn, certainly at Williams we inculcate plenty of facts into our students. But we think that the primary purpose of education is to learn to think critically, to write, to express yourself orally, to make arguments, to deconstruct and pull apart other people's arguments, to work collaboratively, to work across disciplines. These are the kinds of capacities that will last a student throughout their lifetime that go far beyond the kind of technical 
the technical abilities that uh, that are, are are at a more uh, you, you might get at a larger institution or one that was less personal. Adam, this is Stuart. Um, isn't uh, liberal arts a bit in conflict with the typical regimented type of education that is received in Chinese universities? I think it is. I would say it's complementary to that. I mean, we have visitors at Williams from Chinese institutions who come and, and want to know how we do what we do. Because I think what people are discovering is that while a more technical education has obvious applicability to the day a student walks out of the institution and into the workforce, over time, over five or 10 or 20 years, there are other capacities that students need to have, that adults need to have in order to become leaders. And so when Chinese visitors come, they're asking what we do. Uh, because they're thinking about not just the five-year horizon, but the 20- and 30-year horizon. Yes, but then you're looking to try to create entrepreneurs, aren't you? And, and you're trying to create people who think outside the box, which is really very distant from the sort of typical Chinese university standard. Oh, I think that's right. That is, what we want to create are leaders. And those are entrepreneurs, but they're leaders of all sorts of kinds. They're people who can take institutions in a world that's changing in ways that you can't possibly imagine and bring them into those new worlds. And there, the ability to think in fields that go far beyond your narrow technical training is critical to if you're to be an engineer who understands sociology, who understands history, who understands literature. That's what it really takes to take a large institution and adapt it for a new decade. So now that actually directly ties into a tweet that I received from Candy uh, with a question. And she says her question is, what about entrepreneurism? Is this something that is looked for in prospective students or taught at the school? Well, I think you answered the second part of that question yeah. already. What about the first part? I think entrepreneurialism is a state of mind, right? It's not just about starting companies. It's about looking at the world and finding things to be interested in finding things that one can bring into one's world, new ideas, uh, new capacities at every moment in order to create something new. And that's what I think a liberal arts education is fundamentally about. It's about using the pieces that you see around you, understanding them deeply and creating new things that were never there before. That's very different than simply learning to do a particular thing that's already been done before, and even if you're doing it very well. Adam, that's a great quote. I'm going to use that one again and again. <laughs> you're welcome to. Um, what I found particularly interesting was that there was a Forbes ranking last year which rated Williams as number one. Now, Williams has been rated number one plenty of times, I think consistently more or less for the last 25 years or so in liberal arts rankings. Uh, but what was interesting about this particular article was that it uh, clubbed William in uh, the same pool as sort of the Ivy Leagues, which our listeners here are very familiar with, you know, all the, 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 the Ivy Leagues and the Stanfords. And in and amongst those, Williams was still number one. And what Forbes said was that the way they measure is in terms of input as well as output. Can you explain what that means? So I was very pleased with that article precisely for the reason that you say, that it made the point that our institutions uh, should be put next to Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Stanford and stand up extraordinarily well next to them. <laughs> The, what I think comes out in that article is that the, the inputs of good students are, are important, but what you do with those students when they get there is incredibly important. And the difference between Williams and a large university is that the students really have access to the teachers. They, we have faculty who really want to teach, who could be teaching at any of these Ivies, but they want to be with students. They want to be with undergraduates. They want to train the minds of 18, 19, 20-year-olds. 
At the larger institutions, uh, the students who are undergraduates often take a back seat to graduate students and professional students in terms of the attention they get from the faculty. And that doesn't happen at Williams. And so the, the kind of education someone gets, I think, is really different and much deeper. Stuart, what do you think? Is that a fundamental difference also between uh, not just Williams, but liberal arts uh, institutions in the U.S. and and here? Yes, uh, but I think what a lot of people in this part of the world like to look at is when when they're looking at the different universities around the world and they have a lot of choices available to them because – like you, Adam, um, universities come over and represent themselves to our part of the world. But they also look at who are the, the alumni, who has come out of those universities, what have they done, and, and, and you know, are they people that they could look up to? So maybe it would be a good idea if you've got a few names that you can throw out at us that, uh, of people who have graduated. Can you, Adam? Well, I can think of one. <laughs> no, uh, the um, uh, we had some wonderful alumni, and uh, starting with James Garfield, who was president of the United States, and, um, and a, a while ago, a while ago. I mean, so we have con- currently senators and congressmen uh, from Williams College. Mm-hmm. I think that it's another point that the Forbes magazine uh, made was that the the kinds of outcomes that we have are really competitive with any of the Ivy League universities. I've talked to a friend of mine who works at uh, Microsoft, who's a Williams grad who hires both engineers from Stanford and Washington and also Williams graduates. And what he says is that the computer engineering graduates from the big universities, when they come, they know more programming languages. But six months in, it's the Williams graduates who are leading the teams. Mm. It's the Williams graduates who are setting the direction. And that difference in technical education makes itself that, – that uh, resolves itself very, very quickly. But the leaders that he finds are the ones that have the liberal arts education for the reasons that I said before. You, you're suggesting as well that you're, you're, you're making a good case for sort of postgraduate work as well at Williams. I think that's right. And, and many of our, our students, most of our students do postgraduate work. And we, we think that's entirely appropriate. Uh, for example, we have students who become engineers, but typically they do that by re- majoring in a science such as physics and then going on and getting engineering degrees. Yeah. Okay, so much more I want to talk about. We're running out of time. I must uh, address this tweet from Josephine, uh, who says that in a world where everybody is an A student and everybody has a near 2400 SAT score and selectivity rates are in the single digits, is there place in colleges like Williams for the B grade student? <laughs> That's a wonderful question. Yes, in the following sense, that what we're looking for is not simply students who know how to take tests. But the student who flourishes at Williams is the one who has an who has energy and an open mind to new ideas, and we cra- and and the willingness to embrace the opportunities that the college offers. So we don't simply lop off the top test takers and admit them to Williams. We're looking for intellectual vitality. We're looking for deep engagement. We're looking for the desire to be in an academic community which is collaborative and interdisciplinary. And those are the students we admit. But how do you get that if you know they've got the B grades? I mean, that's what you're looking uh-huh. at, right? Well, I'm not saying we're looking for students with Bs either. <laughs> what I would say, though, is that the, the having the highest possible grades isn't the gold standard for admission to Williams. Obviously, you have to be a great student, but it's not enough. And the thing we really want is that intellectual engagement. All right, Adam, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Money for Nothing. That is Adam Falk, and he is the 17th president of Williams College. A quick look at the numbers before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is up uh, 
19,748. Australia's ASX index is also up uh, the same amount, and so is uh, Seoul's Kospi. Australia is now at 5,943, and uh, the Kospi is at 2,043. Gold is at $1,191 per ounce, and Brent crude oil at $55.12. So, Stuart, in 20 seconds or less, parting thoughts for this Wednesday. Look for more volatility. I think we're going to see a lot of it in the markets in the next few weeks. Volatility is the name of the game. All right, Stuart, thank you for joining us today. And every Wednesday, that is Stuart Aldcroft, uh, Chairman of City Trust. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for this morning's Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy with bright periods during the day. The maximum temperature will be around 21 degrees. Right now, the temperature is 18 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 76%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Samantha Butler. Police say severe weather conditions mean it could take days to recover the bodies of the 150 victims of the German airliner, which crashed in the French Alps. Investigators have described a scene of devastation. The German Foreign Minister Frank-Walter Steinmeier spoke of a picture of horror. The plane, an Airbus A320 operated by German wings, was on its way to Dusseldorf from Barcelona. The Spanish Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy has declared three days of national mourning. President Obama described the crash as an awful tragedy and said the United States would help in any way it could. It's particularly heartbreaking because uh, it apparently includes the loss of so many children, uh, some of them infants. 